late in the evening, June 5, 1944, General Dwight D. Eisenhower gave the command for the Allied troops to launch across the English Channel and into France. This is what we came to know as D-Day. And we regard it now as the critical moment when World War II shifted away from the Axis and then into the favor of the U.S. and the Allied forces. And Eisenhower wrote a letter that was passed around and read to all the troops as they prepared to launch. And he said these words, You are about to embark on the Great Crusade. The eyes of the world are upon you. I have full confidence in your courage, devotion to duty, and skill in battle. We will accept nothing less than full victory. But there in the middle of that same night, Eisenhower went down to his bunk by himself and privately wrote out a second letter that he set aside in case of failure. The troops, the air, and the navy did all that bravery and devotion to duty could do, he wrote. If any blame or fault attaches to the attempt, it is mine alone. Now that is the hallmark of a great leader, isn't it? Praising the troops in victory, but in defeat, carrying the blame himself. That's the kind of leader we all want to follow or work for or learn under, isn't it? And y'all, as we open up the book of Exodus, we would probably very naturally assume that this is the kind of leader God is going to raise up to rescue his people from slavery. The whole point of Exodus in these early chapters is God's people Israel are enslaved and under the oppression of the greatest superpower in the world at that time, Egypt. Pharaoh has got them under his thumb, but God is committed to rescue them, and he's got an emissary in mind, a man that he's going to raise up and send for the deliverance of his people. Now, what kind of leader would be up to such a task? And then what we realize when we get into chapters 2, 3, and 4 especially, the man we get, the man God chooses, doesn't look much like General Eisenhower. God calls a long-forgotten shepherd named Moses. Now, in time, fair warning, we're going to see Moses leading with great courage and faith and self-sacrifice. That day will come, but not today. That's not how we find him initially. When God commissions Moses for this great work, all Moses does is try to talk his way out of it. There's no advancing on his part, only retreat. But what we'll see today, God does not accept Moses' resignation. God has no in-case-of-failure letter written out. We're right on the cusp of this great deliverance of Israel from Egypt, but first, God has got to form the man he's called. He's got to take a very weak and cowardly man, in this case, Moses, and fortify him for the task. And so we're going to try our very best to to survey all of chapter 4 this morning, or at least most of it. Let's let's do just a quick little recap here. What we saw in chapter 3, God has taken uh, notice of his people and their suffering. He cares for them. He says to Moses at the burning bush, I have come down to deliver deliver them. And so he calls Moses now to be that man, his champion, his ambassador, to go and speak to Pharaoh about all that God's power is going to accomplish. But Moses, on his part, is angling for a way out. He does not see himself as capable or competent 
He is a failure in his own mind, and surely God has the wrong man. But y'all, as we look at Moses' excuses here in chapter 4, I want you to notice especially how every time Moses protests against God's plan, God is unwavering in his good and perfect purpose. He will not let Moses uh, escape this opportunity and this calling. He's going to use him. Look at verse 1 of chapter 4 with me. Moses, this is like excuse number three or four, dating back to last week, okay? But here we go. He says, what if they, the Israelites, will not believe me or listen to what I say? For they may say, the Lord has not appeared to you. The Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? And Moses said, a staff, his shepherd's staff. Then God said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent. And Moses fled from it. But the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand and grasp it by its tail. So he stretched out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand. That they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. God then gives Moses a second sign. He tells him to put his hand into his cloak. And then bringing it back out, his hand is leprous and diseased, dead white. And then at God's command, he puts his hand back into his cloak. And when he brings it out, it's good as new, perfectly healthy. Then God promises a third sign. If necessary, when you're in Egypt, you will take water from the Nile and pour it out on the ground and that water will be turned to blood. Three miracles God gives to Moses, and he calls them signs. The Lord uses the term signs, same term we get in the book of John, speaking of the miracles of Jesus. And that's a very important word in our Bible. The word sign is just like the word sign now. It's, a, it's something that points to something greater. The sign that says Jackson 20 miles when you're on I-55, right? The sign is not Jackson. The sign is pointing you to something greater than the sign itself, right? And so Moses is not a magician. That's not the point of Exodus 4 and beyond. Moses is God's ambassador functioning out of God's power. Moses, when you go and show these signs to the people, they're going to point them to something and more especially to someone. The very power of God, the very finger of God that has now come to rescue them. That's the point of each miracle. And so this goes back to something that we've, we've seen. If you've been with us walking through Exodus to this point, as Moses has expressed his own inability, his own uh, insufficiency, they're not going to believe me. Who am I to go and accomplish such a great task? The Lord has consistently pushed back, not by assuring Moses of his greatness, but by assuring Moses of God's greatness. Remember the first thing Moses said, who am I that I should do this? God's response was, certainly I will be with you. God also promised that the elders of Israel would heed the words of Moses when he came. They will give heed to what you say. God assured this to him. If you speak, they will listen and they will follow. Now, Moses is understandably hesitant about all of this, even though God is the one making the promise, Moses recognizes the truth that just kind of dominates his present reality 
Remember, if you, if, you, uh, if you know the story, how long Moses had been away from Egypt, away from his kinsmen, the Israelites. He's been gone 40 years. So when Moses comes back, for some of the Israelites, they're going to see him as a stranger. They won't know his face at all. Others may consider him a deserter, a traitor who left them. Some may consider him a rat. Who's to say that Pharaoh hasn't put you up to this to try to trick us? Didn't you grow up in Pharaoh's household after all? But God is committed to overcoming all of Moses' insecurity or any skepticism that might be on the part of Israel. God gives Moses miraculous power, the ability to do God's wonders. You will perform these signs for them and they will pay heed to you. It's going to be clear, Moses, that you're not coming in your own power, but in the power of the Lord. Now, y'all, short point of application here, but hopefully it's, it's an encouragement to us. What Moses is being asked to do here is to walk by faith, not by sight. Some of us have coffee mugs that have that scripture on it. That's from 2 Corinthians 5. We walk by faith, not by sight, right? Great verse. But that's what God is calling Moses to do here. Moses doesn't have all the information. Moses doesn't know for certain how he'll be received or what the outcome will be. He has to go on what God has said and who he knows God to be. And y'all, for us, every single day, some, some, some big ways, some small ways, but every single day, you and I are faced with the challenge, are we going to live according to what God says and who God is? Or are we going to live based on what we feel and see and perceive alone. And y'all, the challenge for us is because the, you know, what we see and feel and perceive is very real. It's right in front of us. We live in a very real, tangible world right, of cause and effect, of anxiety over the future. and The, pre like, stuff, is, the stuff we experience is very real. It's not imaginary. And that's what makes it tough. We feel like God sometimes is further away than the present reality in which we live. But that's the point here. For each one of us, Moses' concerns about going to Israel, they're going to reject me. They won't listen to me. That was a valid concern. What reason would they have to believe Moses on his own? But God says, no, I will cover you in my promise. I will grant you my power. They will listen, not because it's you, Moses, but because you're on my side. I'm on your side. That, right? I'm with you. I'm certainly with you. So when we quote that little verse from 2 Corinthians 5, we walk by faith, not by sight. Y'all, that's, um, that's not a statement of Christianity being some pie in the sky, head in the clouds uh, way of life where we have to ignore reality and just kind of live above it and pretend. I hope you know that's not what that verse means. No, what we're called to do as Christians, we very much inhabit the real world. We walk, we live, but we don't live according to our feelings and our sight and our perception. We walk, we live according to the surpassing reality of God's truth and God's grace, God's power and God's presence. What we feel and what we see is no match for what God says and, and what God does and who God is. Y'all, that's what the whole book of Exodus is about. Walking by faith, trusting God to walk through the Red Sea and not around it. Do not walk by sight alone. That's the picture of Exodus, and that's for us. Am I trusting who God is and what God says? Or am I dominated by what I see and feel? Now, at this point in the, in the narrative, 
three miraculous signs, two that, that Moses has seen, one that God has promised. Surely Moses is all the way on board now. What more could it take? But we'd be wrong. If you see verse 10, Moses has another excuse here in his bag to pull from. Moses said to the Lord, Please, Lord, I've never been eloquent, neither recently nor in time past, nor since you have spoken to your servant, not even in this conversation, for I'm slow of speech and slow of tongue. For a guy slow of tongue, Moses sure does talk a lot. I don't know if you have noticed that to this point. But that's his excuse. I can't talk. Verse 11, the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Or who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now then go, and I, even I, will be with your mouth and teach you what you are to say. So Moses changes course. His first objection in this chapter is, they won't believe me. Now he says, they won't listen to me. They won't follow me because I'm not skilled in speech. As if God hasn't really thought his plan through and Moses is giving him information that God didn't otherwise have. Y'all, I love God's response. Remember, when, whenever Moses objects, God does not comfort Moses on the basis of Moses' skill or ability. God is pointing back each time to his own ability, the Lord's ability. The Lord says, who has made man's mouth? Moses, do you know who you're talking to? Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now then go, and I, even I, will be with your mouth and teach you what you are to say. God has the power and the ability to achieve all his good purpose in weak, slow of speech, Moses. And so I wonder at this point, you know, sometimes we read between the lines, and that can be appropriate here. Moses perhaps thinks he's being humble in these objections, his excuses. But y'all, as far as I see it, this is not humility on Moses' part. This is a lack of faith, which is really a twisted form of pride. I cannot trust that God would do this, not because I'm so humble, but because I'm prideful. I cannot see how God could possibly use me for his glory. And I just love the fact that God continually turns this back around on him. Because y'all, the point of trusting God is that we forsake trust in ourselves. Trusting in self is a, is a twisted form of pride that has to be left at the door in order to trust God. You can't hold both of them in concert together. One has to go. And my hope is that we find in here at least a little bit of an application for ourselves because all of us, perhaps at some point, have done what Moses does here, thinking ourselves humble. I come up with an excuse as to why I just can't obey God and what he calls me to do and what his word declares and commands. I've got all sorts of reasons why I'm too weak. My past is too dark. Uh, you know, I, I don't have the ability. I don't have the platform. I can't do this. And y'all, I would just say in that case, it's very possible that we're walking by sight and not by faith. Our perception of ourselves, my perception of me might be accurate. I am weak. I am incompetent in many ways. But that's not the point. That's pride if I allow that to excuse me from obedience. Does God have power over our weakness and insecurity? Or doesn't he? 
It's not humble for me to tell God how he can or cannot use me. That's pride in disguise. That's Moses' problem. And it gets worse before it gets better. Look at verse 13. But Moses says finally, Please, Lord, now send the message by whomever you will. Anybody but me. Then the anger of the Lord burned against Moses. And he said, Is there not your brother Aaron the Levite? I know that he speaks fluently. And moreover, behold, he's coming out to meet you. When he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You are to speak to him and put the words in his mouth. And I, even I, will be with your mouth and his mouth. And I will teach you what you are to do. Moreover, he shall speak for you to the people. And he will be as a mouth for you and you will be as God to him. You shall take in your hand this staff with which you shall perform the signs. Now, this part reads a little odd to us, perhaps. It's understandable that, that, that God, at this stage of the conversation, is angry with Moses. We're on excuse four, five, six at this point. Moses will not simply drop his defense and follow God. And so God is angry. We get that. Of course he is. But does it kind of seem like Moses gets his way in the end? Does it seem like Moses, you know, with all of his excuses, finally that last one, that broke the camel's back, Moses has prevailed, and God has to change course. As if God finally realizes, okay, I think maybe I chose the wrong guy, and I need a plan B here. See, it's, it's interesting, though, at, this, at the same time, simultaneously, God is angry with Moses, as he should be. And yet God is also very gracious with Moses. He doesn't cast him out. He doesn't send him away. He promises help. God says, I'll bring your older brother Aaron alongside you to be your helper. See, the plan, the purpose, and the power of God have not changed. Nothing about the plan has changed. But God is very gracious to change the mode, as it were. Moses, you will not go alone. Aaron will be with you. Now, again, that's great, but is God conceding here? Is Moses winning over the conversation and the plan? Y'all, a few weeks ago, we made a real big deal out of the word providence. Speaking of God's providence, which is a word that says God is always, always working in this world to produce and achieve his good purposes in our lives, for those who believe, for those who don't believe, in, in big things and in small things, God is always at work achieving his providence, his will on earth. Sometimes we're aware of it. It's very obvious. Other times we never see it, or we only see it in hindsight. Right here in Exodus 4, we're given a little peek behind the curtain as to the providence of God. Is it so that Moses, with all his whining excuses, finally got God to change his mind? Back in verse 14... Remember, we saw that God brings up Aaron. He says, behold, Aaron is coming out to meet you. Right? I mean, in this very moment, it would seem awfully convenient that Aaron's on his way. After 40 years, Aaron decided to pay a visit to Midian and check in on Moses. Isn't that good timing? But y'all scroll down with me to verse 27. Just look at verse 27 for a moment. Now the Lord said to Aaron, Go to meet Moses in the wilderness. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. 
Why did Aaron go see Moses? Because God told him to. And I show us that to show the fact that, that in the face of Moses' objections, God never throws up his hands and wonders what to do next. God doesn't say, okay, well, if Moses won't go, or if he won't go alone, then I'm going to, you know, and then God catches a, a shadow on the horizon. There's Aaron. Lucky me, God thinks. Aaron's coming. He'll play the part, right? He'll fill in the gap. That's not what's happening here. Moses does not prevail over God. God gives grace to Moses and commands Aaron to come out after all these years to come and meet him. And when they meet, they're glad to see each other. Moses delivers the plan that God has given to he and Aaron, and then they prepare to go. This is God's mercy at work. He doesn't cast Moses away to choose somebody else, but he does graciously grant him help because God is both gracious and powerful. He's always going to achieve what he sets out to do. And we get an insight into this. God is going to do what he's always planned from the beginning. Look at verse 21. The Lord says to Moses, right on the cusp of the action here, the Lord calls his shot. The Lord says to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders which I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I said to you, let my son go that he may serve me. But you have refused to let him go. Behold, I will kill your son, your firstborn. God is dealing with two nations here in very distinct ways. Israel, Israel belongs to God as a son belongs to a father. This is an amazing language here. God brought them into being. He calls Israel his firstborn. And because his heart is for them, they belong to him. God is going to be merciful. He's going to use his great power to bring rescue and deliverance. He's going to bring them up out of their affliction. But to Pharaoh and to Egypt, who are evil and spiteful and oppressive, God will bring judgment. Remember, it was Pharaoh and his people back in chapter 1 who tore the Israelite baby boys away from their parents and drowned them in the Nile River. These are not neutral people. Pharaoh is evil, and his evil will come back on his head. And this is something, y'all, that the Exodus has a great deal of light and darkness both. And so it's important for us up front, before we get into the plagues and so forth in the weeks to come, y'all, the, the tender hand of mercy and the heavy hand of judgment belong to the same perfect God who always does what is right. He will grant mercy to his people and judgment to the Egyptians in the times to come. And he will always end up in the right because he is God. So y'all, finally, as the, as the chapter comes to a close, there is, by the way, there's a very bizarre little story in this chapter that I'm not going to preach. It ain't because I'm scared. If you're, if you're from, you'll find it if you read, okay? Buy me a cup of coffee and I'll tell you all about it, okay? But we just don't have time for it today. You'll find it. Uh, 
I'll buy the coffee if that's an issue, okay? If it's a $3 issue, I'll do it if you really want to know, okay? All right, finally, so finally at the chapter's end, Moses and Aaron, finally we get to Egypt, all right? The setting is upon us. Verse 29, Then Moses and Aaron went and assembled all the elders of the sons of Israel. And Aaron spoke all the words which the Lord had spoken to Moses. He then, Moses, performed the signs in the sight of the people. So the people believed, just as God promised. The people believed. And when they heard that the Lord was concerned about the sons of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, then they bowed low and worshipped. Moses and Aaron come to Egypt and they gather the elders, the leaders of Israel together. They speak the words of God and they perform the wonders of God. And just as God said would happen, the elders receive them. They pay heed to what is said. And y'all, we see this again in, in verse 31. I just want to point this out one more time. When they, the elders, when they heard that the Lord, this is the covenant name, Yahweh, when they heard that the Lord was concerned about the sons of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed low and worshipped. Oh, it's, it really is impossible for us to imagine the amount of relief and joy that Israel would have felt in hearing of God's mercy and His plan to rescue them. 400 years of slavery and oppression. A thick cloud of darkness that had long ago set in and had made them just despairing with no hope of this dark cloud ever lifting. Perhaps they had convinced themselves that God had abandoned them entirely. And then one day, I mean, out of the clear blue, one day, God's chosen men, two brothers, arrive, and they deliver with power God's gracious promise. There could be no other rational response for these people, right? But to bow low and worship, to rejoice with reverence. God has not abandoned us. He loves us. And he has indeed come to save us. Now, I say that's impossible for us to imagine, but not entirely. If, if we were to fast forward to a place in the New Testament, after the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, in the book of Acts, there was a man named the Apostle Paul. He had a companion, Barnabas. And in Acts chapter 13, they were in a city called Pisidian Antioch, proclaiming the gospel of Jesus and oddly enough, it was the Jewish people who were opposing the message and seeking to persecute these Christians. And Paul makes a statement. They're, they're, this is a city filled with both Jews and Gentiles, non-Jews, like us. And Paul says to them, to the Jews, since you repudiate this message, we're turning to the Gentiles. And Paul says, this is Acts 13, 47. Paul says, for so the Lord has commanded us, I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the end of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. 
Acts 13 and Exodus 4 are almost like a mirror image, aren't they? When people who are otherwise lost and helpless and hopeless hear the message of God's love and His mercy and salvation, the only reasonable response is what? It's worship. Rejoicing. What happened to the elders of Israel at the message of God's grace, the same thing happens to the Gentiles at the preaching of the gospel. A humble glorifying of the Lord for His grace in coming down to save us. And so I say this is not something that's impossible for us to imagine. Circumstances may be different. But the very same grace, the very same hope and joy ought to fill our hearts as we sit here today. That Jesus Christ is the light of the world. Both Jew and Gentile. To the world, He's our light. He has brought salvation. Jesus has to the ends of the earth. Beyond Jerusalem and Judea. To Ridgeland, Mississippi. He's brought salvation. To all those who would look to Him and trust Him and call upon His name. Jesus has loved us and He's given Himself for us so that we might receive eternal life in Him. And y'all, I say this as we close as a prayer. It's my prayer for me and for you. That regardless of how many times we've heard this message, count if you come to Harvest Church regularly, you hear it all the time. And I'm so grateful. But it doesn't matter how many times we hear it. Our prayer ought to be that we would come to the same response always. Bowing low in worship. Rejoicing, celebrating, praising God for the fact that He has so saved sinners like me and you. Y'all, here's the truth. Let's go down into the darkness for just a half a second here. If I'm a sinner, my sin has alienated me from God. And in me, in myself, there is no hope for renovation, for change, for restoration or salvation. There's nothing in me that I can earn God's acceptance or climb my way out of the pit that my sin has dug. But God, being rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, makes us alive together with Christ. For by grace you have been saved. And now the free gift of God is eternal life by faith in His Son, Jesus. We do not achieve what God has come to give us as a gift. It is ours to receive by trusting in Him. Now how else could you and I reasonably respond to such power and grace? This should be for us a never-ending source of worship and rejoicing. When sinners like us hear that God actually loves us and has come for us and has saved us by grace. We're never numb to that message. Let's have open hearts, soft hearts, to respond as Israel did, as the Gentiles did, because we're the very same. People in need of salvation that God has graciously come to grant. Y'all, I want to encourage us in this closing time that we would find a way to respond. And it could be that you respond right where you sit, 
personally, privately, or taking the hand of someone you love as we pray, that's wonderful. But if you would like to be prayed for, if you'd like to talk with one of our pastors about what it means to be a Christian, what it means to receive this grace, then we would love to do that with you. We're going to have uh, our pastors, Aaron and Evan, will be standing at the back of the room by the big double doors there. If during my prayer, if during this final song, if you'd like to just slip back and take them by the hand and ask for prayer, ask for a conversation, and we'd love to do that with you. But however we respond, let it be that we respond in worship because God has so delighted to save us and has brought us near by the blood of his Son. There is no um, indifferent way to respond. Let's worship him as we pray. Father, I'm asking this morning for uh, the kind of uh, heart in me and in us that we really would walk by faith and not by sight. Lord, we're, we're well aware of this present world in which we live. I pray we're well aware of our own sinfulness, Lord and the darkness that's, that's present within us, not just outside of us. Or we know that we're unworthy, that we're incapable and weak. But Lord, let that not be our assessment that we walk out of these doors with. Because Lord, in our weakness, in all darkness, in sin, Father, you've come. You've granted to us your grace through your Son, Jesus Christ, the light that expels the darkness, Lord. Grace that covers all sin. You've made us your very own. You call us, Lord, your sons, just as you called Israel your firstborn. We are yours. And so, Father, let that truth, let your grace to us and our, our nearness to you, Lord, let that be what determines our identity, our walking, our living. We walk by faith. Because you, Father, have displayed your power. You have given your mercy in its fullness to each of us. Father, this morning as we, I pray, as we take more deeply in, Lord, this wonderful good news, that there would be no indifference in our hearts. That we would not think, well, I've heard that so many times and become numb to it. But the very grace of Jesus Christ, Lord, would, would enlighten us. Lord, that, that you would um, enlarge our hearts, as it were, that to take in the fullness of your love. Lord, that you would bow us low in humility and worship you. That we would be so dearly loved. That your affection for us, Lord, would be so rich. That while we were yet sinners, Christ would die for us. Help us, Lord, to worship with full hearts, stunned, always stunned, that you, the, the great God in heaven, would incline yourself to us, come all the way down for us like you have. We thank you, Lord. Let your grace mark everything we do and everything that is true of us inside and out. Let us walk by faith. In the gracious and awesome name of Jesus Christ. Amen.